0: hello everyone welcome to snit a studies in national and international development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at queen's university since 1983 snit has proudly hosted prominent canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local national and global development please share our podcast with friends family and colleagues we're glad to have you with us
1: Okay, welcome to the second session of the winter 2021 term of SNID, which stands for Studies in National and International Development, hosted by Queen's University. My name is Carolyn Prouss. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Planning, and I co-chair SNID with Aicha Tomach. Queen's is located on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabe Nation. This territory is included in the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which is an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and more recently the Haudenosaunee, to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario. Last session, I mentioned the new wayfinding kiosks along Kingston's waterfront, such as at Lake Ontario Park, created by Georgina Real and Andy Berg with local Anishinaabe artist, Onagate. So I'm going to read again, From what one of the kiosks says about the dish with one spoon wampum so quote the dish represents the diplomatic relations of living on shared territory with each nation maintaining their distinct sovereignty the dish shows how to live in interconnected harmony without interference violence or war the diplomatic principle of gudu naginina is a living document and process for all nations to collaborate peacefully the dish is used with a spoon for the purpose of sharing and knives are not allowed so that no one gets hurt." End quote." Learning about the dish with one spoon, especially over this past year, has made me think a lot about what it means to be a settler living in harmony with this agreement, to share resources, to respect sovereignty, and collaborate peacefully at all times, but especially now during the pandemic. We're lucky to have four guests with us today who have been thinking about and acting on similar commitments even though not everyone is situated on Dish With One Spoon territory. So two of our guests today are on unceded Coast Salish territory of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples out west. All four guests have been organizing the sharing of resources through mutual aid activities during COVID-19, but they all each also have long been organizing against violent dispossessions of the racist settler state. So I will introduce each speaker in a moment, but before that, I'll just give you a quick layout of the session. So after Aicha introduces the speakers, each will have a few minutes to briefly explain who they are and what their organization does. And then Aicha and I have a series of follow-up questions that we'll ask, but at that point, we'll also open it up to you as well if you have any questions. So you can use the raise hand feature if you want to orally ask your question. Um, And then you can also just write a question into the chat and we'll be monitoring both of those. Um, So that's how we will proceed. And with that, I'll hand it over to Aicha.
2: Uh, thank you, Carolyn, for this opening. So our speakers today is uh, Jade Crimson uh, Rose da Costa, who is a gender non-binary queer woman of color, a sociology PhD candidate at York University. Uh, da Costa is co-founder of the People's Pantry, a free grassroots meal program for food insecure families living in or near the GTA, as well as the founder and EIC of New Sociology Journal of Critical Praxis. Next, we have Liz Turner, who is a member of Mutual Aid Kataraki Kingston, uh, which has been organizing food delivery and halting evictions during COVID-19. Turner is also a member of AKA Autonomous Social Center uh, here in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, Dania Ayodo is a CMHC Shirk postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Geography and Planning uh, at Queen's University and a researcher with the Right to Remain project. Her interests include housing, racial capitalism, settler colonialism, community-based research, and critical GIS. Uh, Tom de Grey is a tenant researcher with the Right to Remain project and is the vice president of the board of the Downtown Eastside SRO Collaborative. Uh, His interests include SRO housing, histories of the Downtown Eastside, and Haiku. Um, Welcome all. um maybe Jade you want to start maybe we can uh you know continue with this uh list of speakers you want to start
3: yes of course thank you so much for that introduction uh, my apologies i have allergies right now so um please forgive my the way my voice sounds uh yes so as i uh, mentioned my name is jay crimson de costa and i am a co-founding member of the people's pantry so the people's pantry is a mutual aid project that was founded in uh, March 2020 when COVID-19 hit Canada. Uh, it started out when me and five other graduate students, uh, York and UFT, of T, uh, as well as community organizers, predominantly queer, trans, black people of color, and women uh, started just cooking and uh, buying groceries for people in our communities. Um, the other co-founders are located across Toronto, and I'm located in Burlington, so I was getting uh, food to Burlington, Hamilton, Milton, those areas, so the southwest border of the GTA, and the other members were kind of located across Toronto, and we're getting it near Toronto, as well as like Ajax and Brampton and Mississauga. Um, now we have about 500 members, we're coming up, volunteers, and we're coming up on our a year of uh, being a group. Uh, we've reached about 26,000 people, uh, food insecure families in uh, Toronto, the GTA, and nearby cities. We span from Toronto to Kitchener, Waterloo, and Guelph. Um, we, yeah, as I said before, we're predominantly women, queer, trans, Black people of color led, and we embrace that praxis and politic in our organizing and our mutual aid work. Uh, We're all completely grassroots and volunteer, and we also have gotten the support of Food Share Toronto, which is a registered group, uh, food justice group, which allows us to get things like grants, but then also remain the autonomy of being a grassroots non-registered organization. Uh, We've been able to raise $150,000 in grants and community organizing since the project has started, and we've been able to acclimate a lot of support from uh, the community, both from agricultural spaces, food justice spaces, and just um, the community writ large. So yeah, that's my introduction. Liz, do you wanna go next? Yeah, great, thanks. Um, yeah, my name's Liz.
4: Um, I've been in Kingston for 13 years or so now, I think. Um, I actually came for Queens, but uh, didn't finish. <laughs> um, yeah, and I am I, um, we started the Mutual Aid Cataraqui-Kingston project kind of out of AKA Autonomous Social Center, but quickly got other people involved. Um, and it's been, um, yeah, it's been a really cool group to like meet a lot of new people and work with a lot of new people in Kingston. Um, we have, we started the group with kind of a food delivery um, bent in mind. So we matched neighbors with neighbors to like get groceries for people with, who couldn't leave their house and that was quite successful for a while. Um, and then we started kind of building off of that and have branched out into a bunch of different kind of subgroups of Max. So there's like a tenant defense group, there's a houseless support group, there's like an anti-fascist kind of education and like monitoring group. Um, and then there's a gardening network that we also started and launched last year and like grew a bunch of veggies and gave a bunch of veggies away um, in, Really, really free veggie markets, which was really fun. We're going to continue that this year. Um, yeah, so it, it kind of expanded a lot. Um, we have shifted away a bit from food deliveries, but are thinking about restarting that again. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a neat project.
2: Uh, awesome, thank you, Liz. Uh, Danny, you want to go
5: next? Hey, yeah, I'm actually gonna let Tom um, introduce himself first and he can say a bit about the SRO Collaborative and then I'll I'll, uh, I'll fill in after.
6: Oh, okay, uh, uh, I've been with the SRO Collaborative almost since the beginning, I'm essentially a volunteer. Um, the SRO Collaborative is sort of partnered up with Right to Remain project. So I'm both a tenant researcher and a uh, tenant organizer Uh, the fundamental mission of the collaborative is to improve and maintain the existing deeply low-income housing in vancouver Uh, it's disappearing very quickly it very obviously feeds into the homeless problem that we have in vancouver Uh, four blocks away from where i live is a large park i just saw it this morning Uh, walking to this meeting and there's over 200 tents in this park now and it's sub-zero weather. And I kind of shook my head and just said, this is absurd in our affluent society. Um, How the two, uh, Wright-Chermaine and uh, the SRO Collaborative uh, mesh together is uh, Wright-Chermaine is studying displacement. Um, And in this case, economic displacement of poor people of downtown Eastside. Uh, we've had problems with rent evictions, bad faith uh, evictions, um, you name it, the whole gamut. And we've been working on every different level to mitigate that problem, to improve the existing SROs, and of course, advocating for all levels of government to build proper housing um, to fill this obvious need. I mean, a basic human right, as a matter of fact. Um Danny is that sufficient oh just one point in my biography uh which was missed is I actually live in an SRO and in my SRO is being aggressively converted into market housing um uh, one one person was uh illegally evicted and they tripled the rent so I mean it's well beyond anybody on um Assistance can afford any kind of assistance, even, even uh, old age pension and so on. So, um, I can speak to that on a personal level if, it, if it's helpful for anybody, what it feels like to be under constant threat of eviction, you know, your manager peeking in your window, that kind of stuff. So, anyway, Danny. That
5: was great. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, so my name is Danny Ayalo. I, as my, thank you for the introduction as well. Um, as my intro said, I'm a postdoctoral fellow uh, at Queen's University and uh, working with the right to remain, uh, and I'm also uh, the chair of the board of the SRO Collaborative, um, and I study housing inequality, uh, both here in Vancouver and also in Atlanta, Georgia, so I kind of have like a, two sites where I find communities um, that I have relationships to where I do that work. Uh, And yeah, the SRO Collaborative, uh, as Tom said, yeah, he has been around from the beginning, Um, probably about five years now since 2015. And it was established to um, address a huge gap in terms of the private SRO housing stock here in Vancouver, um, which is really under, uh, like we like to say in the Right to Remain project, this sort of two-prong pressure, um, gentrification and conversion on the one hand, lots of buildings that are uh, being converted and, and lost to the low-income community, um, and then collapse and decay on the other. So those are buildings that are owned and operated by slum lords and have really extreme um, living conditions and structural problems um, and, and so on. Um, yeah, and there are a lot of different projects within the SROC. Uh, right to Remain is kind of like the research arm. There's also TORO, which is the Tenant Overdose Response Organizer Program. Um, and those are tenant leaders in, in the SROs who also have lived experience of using drugs. And they work to build networks in their, in their buildings and support each other um, to respond to overdose and, and reduce harm. Um, and lots of other new projects that have developed in the last year or so, but I won't go into all that detail. But, um, yeah, we work exclusively with those buildings and in those populations. Um, I think that's all I'll go from there. Thanks.
2: um awesome uh thank you all for you know introducing your your work um well one of the questions that uh you know we had to start off this conversation and again you know uh we are asking our audience to you know uh, put their questions in the chat as well or you know uh or raise their hands but you know one of the questions that we were hoping to discuss with you is well there's this kind of um, uh, Let's say a misconce- misconception around mutual aid, as if you know it's emerged as a response to COVID crisis. But you know clearly, all of you have been uh, you know doing community organizing for years before that. So you know our question is basically, um, you know, if you can talk a bit about uh, the previous organizing or your you know history of organizing that basically allowed this response, this rapid response. Uh, in mutual aid um, and maybe we can do that on voluntary basis this time Tom,
6: Mike, I can speak to that I mean the SRO collaborative uh, <clears throat> with city hall uh, took on the task of uh, helping keep the SROs in Vancouver uh, as safe as possible. So we distributed uh, cleaning supplies. We uh, looked for people to take on that task in the buildings to cleanse things like handrails and door knobs and so on and, and distribute masks and so on. So that's a kind of a mutual aid. Um, the reason why the city was interested in working with us is because we had the existing network of contacts in these buildings. We're still working on those networks, I might add, and in fact, an unexpected uh, positive result of, of this pandemic is it's actually reinforced these networks to some extent. So that there's an unexpected benefit, um, we hope. So um, I think that falls under the, the criteria of mutual aid uh, through the pandemic.
5: Um, I can jump off of what Tom was just saying. I appreciate um, that you are highlighting the misconceptions idea that that mutual aid um, kind of emerged out of this flourish as a result of COVID. Um, the reality is that communities like the downtown side have been um, relying on resourcing themselves and supporting each other for, for decades um, through a whole series of crises, not just um, the, a global pandemic, which is the most recent one. Um, and one of the reasons that the SR Collaborative wasn't, was so well positioned to respond to the private SROs is because of years of relationship building, particularly through the Toro Project, um, that we can, we can credit all the folks that have worked so hard on that. Um, lot, many years of relationship building and trust and sharing of resources and trainings for overdose and distributing naloxone and, and all of those things. Um, our, all of that work was what allowed um, folks to activate those networks um, so, so quickly uh, to respond to something really urgent and emergent like COVID. Um, so I appreciate the emphasis on the fact that this, this work has already been done for, for, for a long time. And was necessary to ensure survival through a whole series of crises
1: beforehand.
3: Yeah, actually, if I could um, just echo what Danielle just said, um, I would also say like that's very much the case in Toronto and the GTA as well, where I think um, there yet there very much is this misconception that mutual aid happened just in response to COVID. When the reality is is Black, indigenous people of color, in particular, the poor, newly arrived migrants, queer and trans folks who have been disenfranchised by the state for years, have been doing mutual aid as a way to support one another um, and survive a multitude of pandemics. Like pandemic isn't just specific to COVID, Like, like the killing and letting die of black and indigenous people, especially, but people in color more generally has been happening for a very long time. And I know in Toronto, one of the reasons that queer trans black people of color were leading the people's pantry and you also see black indigenous people of color leading similar projects is that we already had these networks um, set in place, Um, and we also kind of have an almost trained response. to state neglect and violence that enabled a kind of faster reaction. Um, And so you see that places like the People's Pantry and then also other mutual aid projects, like another great one is Uplift Kitchen, are black indigenous people, color led and then supporting these specific communities. Um, And the People's Pantry actually came out of a Facebook post that was put on a group called Caremongering TO. And it was a group in Toronto that again was queer, trans, BIPOC led and was made by Toronto activists who just wanted to create a platform for people to offer and receive mutual aid. Um, And they were just building on these networks that had pre-existed in the city for a very long time. And then it was actually from that site that we saw caremongering groups pop pop up across other places of Southern Ontario. And then it became a very well-known phenomenon in Canada. Um, And I think it speaks a lot to the fact that in Toronto in particular, Queer, trans, Black, Indigenous people of color organizing has a very long history. Um, And so the fact that it kind of came out of that and that group speaks to how central queer, trans, BIPOC folks um, are both in mutual aid projects as well as mutual aid projects that are responding to COVID. And I really liked your question as well because I think there's a tendency to reduce this activist and community work to COVID and, you know, say how did COVID shape our social organizing? And I think a better question is how did queer, trans, black, indigenous people of color, how did black, indigenous people of color in general and the disenfranchised, how did we shape COVID-19 and make it more survivable for our communities?
4: Yeah, um, I guess I'll, yeah, I also like agree with a lot of what's been said so far and I guess I'll just kind of Yeah, I think that in Kingston, the context is a little bit different. There wasn't like huge networks in place. Um, I think that what happened here happened because um, like the people I work with in AKA have like a core group. We meet really often. We were able to kind of conceptualize and mobilize something fast and then call on our like personal networks and years of like just living and working with people in Kingston to other people we thought might be interested in getting involved. Um, And so some of those other like like, the tenant support networks and the houseless support networks, like, that's kind of work that we're building now really slowly, um, and I think that that's, it's been a challenge, but it's also, like, necessary and kind of informed the way that we're building, because um, it's, it's a long-term project, and I think that, like, both um, both of you guys have talked to, like, Existing kind of networks in these cities and it it's, hasn't really happened that way in Kingston so it's um, it's something that we're like working on actively with a lot of people but um, yeah it's a challenge and it's like cool to hear. Um, cool to hear about existing networks that have been going for a while.
5: I really like this um, question in the chat box, I wonder. if
1: We can. Yeah, let's- Let's go to that one next. So I guess I can Um, just read
5: it, Tony. Yeah, if you Uh, could read it, because not everybody can see it.
1: Yeah. Uh, So Tony Thornton is asking, I wonder if the panelists could speak to the relationships with nonprofits and charities regarding funding, given the need to be autonomous, as mentioned, and and to be an example of grassroots change that doesn't replicate hierarchies and power relations. So I wonder how each organization is trying to navigate this.
5: That's such a big question. <laughs> yeah. Tom, do you wanna, Did you have some thoughts you wanna share first?
6: Well, I'll, I'll give it a try. Uh, we have uh, relationships with various uh, <clears throat> charities, nonprofits. Um, it's really the, the ones that we are in some way simpatico to, I think. Um, I can think of one, it's a religious based mm-hmm. charity which I just dealt with yesterday, and they're terrific. Um, others are not so terrific, and we don't tend to connect with it. And that's a kind of a nebulous answer. Uh, as I said, uh, if our, our goals are aligned with this particular group, then, yeah, we definitely reach out. But sometimes we have to say, well, no, we're, we're not really uh, appreciative of what they're doing. Let's put it that way. What do you think, Danny? Nebulous answer uh, I, to a question.
5: Yes, nebulous, but that's okay. I also want to highlight we have a number of um, amazing people behind the scenes at SROC here in this uh, call, and if they want to uh, join us and speak, Rhonda, Wendy, Sammy, please, please do. I'm really happy you're here. Um, yeah, I mean, well, the SROC Collaborative is a nonprofit, um, and I would I would say it's a very grassroots nonprofit because it's quite small and quite young. Um, And all of this, or the majority of the staff are, uh, I guess, folks who might self-identify as peers, people who have the lived experience of either living in SRO or previous experiences of homelessness or experience using drugs, um, um, folks who are indigenous and queer and and so forth. So um, we, as a nonprofit, keep our feet really low to the ground, um, but are regularly having to navigate and negotiate um, you know hierarchical structures and relationships in order to achieve uh, our goals uh, through funding, um, and it's interesting to, to talk about mutual aid with respect to our COVID response because um, it was it was a whole mix of things. On one hand, we were, you know, on calls with with Telus um, to get you know seven hundred phones secured for the neighborhood. Um, and having to kind of do that song and dance. Uh, And on the other hand, there were neighbors from far and wide dropping off huge bags of hand-sewn masks and groups of doctors, you know, 3D printing face shields um, for us. And we were, I was ordering masks on Amazon because a local health authority couldn't provide us with any. Um, so it was just, it was all over the place in terms of how we kind of stitched together um, this response, both relying on um, that wider complex of funding and which is like, you know, partly supported by the state. Um, and a lot of it was really spontaneous and, and community-based and community-led, so. Um, yeah, it's, uh, blurry, (laughs) which is similar to Tom's nebulous answer.
4: Um, yeah, I can speak to that a little bit too. We've like received most of our money or a lot of our money from like just community donations. Um, so that's been really good for not having to interact with, um, like bigger nonprofits. We have like gotten some grants and stuff from Fredonia um, and I think a lot of, yeah, we haven't applied for a lot of money that has a lot of strings attached just because um, none of us are paid and like doesn't really want to interact with that kind of part of the work or be kind of led by another organization and um, Yeah, and I think that we have interacted with other NGOs in doing support work and stuff. Like there are other groups in the community like supporting houseless people and things like that. And um, we've collaborated with them on like certain certain things and projects. And then, yeah, we did work with the food bank to do deliveries in the beginning. So delivering um, food bank boxes to people but that quickly became really frustrating and hard. The food bank here is not very flexible. They're like not, um, they treat their clients really poorly. Um, and it became kind of a task that um, that the people who were doing it was like resentful of. And so we haven't, we've stopped doing that. We stopped working with them. Um, occasionally, I think we've gone and picked up things when they've reached out to us, but um, but it wasn't like a, a partnership we wanted to continue. Um, which is too bad because it's really hard <laughs> for people to get their food bank boxes. And um, so like, I think that's something that is like, yeah, I would love for us to be able to do that, but um, but the capacity just wasn't there.
3: Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, so I think uh, this is a question that I got asked quite a bit um, by multiple different um, folks in different sectors about, um, organizing. And I think, um, for me, it's, I think my experience might be a little different. Uh, first, I think that I, the most of the organizing I had done before uh, COVID-19 was in the context of being a student, uh, so it was institution-based institution and university-based, which is quite different than doing grassroots community organizing. Um, and I think COVID has created somewhat of a climate in which it's a little bit easier to get donations and community support um, because um, collective trauma and survival, although felt very differently for different people, is very real. And I think it does promote more of a, of a general support towards things like mutual aid. Um, and I think that's part of it. So I'm, I do a lot. Of, I do the grants and like the outreach and stuff for the People's Pantry and we've actually never really struggled with finances and We've also been able to get a lot of grant support and applications, uh, sorry, grant funding. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we get trusted by FoodShare. And I think part of my positive experience comes from the fact that we partner with a group like FoodShare. And FoodShare is very interesting. So they are a charity and non-for-profit which is often associated with hierarchical um, design. But Share is a BIPOC-led group that operates according to social justice anti-racist practices and has existed in Toronto in particular and I think other places for a while. Um, and then there's other groups too, like the Black Community Creek Farm and the Sundance Farm, uh, which are again BIPOC-led and long existing groups that were able to establish before COVID a very strong network of like... BIPOC organizers that prioritize community support and so FoodShare also has like a lot of community outreach and base its praxis in the community um, and so through them we've able to get trusteeships for grant applications but we've never once had to change our rhetoric or our politic or what we do um, and we've never had strings attached funds and I think that really speaks to um, the context in particular of Toronto and the GTA where BIPOC people have been able to carve out spaces in organizing and the non-for-profit sector that can really prioritize the work that we're doing. Um, And so, and I recognize though at the same time that that is a unique experience, Um, but it is a a positive one because we have been able to maintain autonomy and consistently do things like name anti-Black racism and settler colonialism and capitalism as the reasons that we're doing this work while also getting money from the government, which is a very tenuous situation and rare situation to be in um but I think it in large part large part again speaks to the history of BIPOC-led organizing in the space that we're in and the importance and power of letting BIPOC folks be not only be in these spaces but lead these spaces um so yeah
1: perfect thank you I have a closely related follow-up question actually related to the previous two questions um one that Aicha and I had spoken a little bit about so a lot of, most of you, all of you really are working towards this kind of deep structural transformational change, right? Like fighting for evictions, right, eviction, right? Or sorry, fighting against evictions, fighting for tenants' rights, um, fighting against dispossession, fighting for food security. And so you have these like these very long drawn out kinds of fights against a, a settler state, right? Uh, but on the other hand, you're having to meet really immediate needs all the time, not just during COVID-19. And so how do you balance those, those longer term kinds of of structural transformations with with that need to to get people resources in the moment and like what are some of the challenges of having to do that how does relying on donations for instance maybe affect your ability to 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 channel resources into those larger structural changes if you have anything to say to to that
6: oh I could make a very simple comment I think uh, COVID really displaced a lot of our efforts in that direction took an enormous amount of energy uh, from everybody, staff and volunteers. Um, things just kind of went on hold for a while. We're hoping they will uh, uh, will have some major changes by June, at least in Vancouver, touch wood on, on evictions. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's pushed us back. It's kind of like it's called the lost year, right? Um, I don't know if, Daniella agrees, but...
5: Tom, can you say more, because we we actually, Carolyn, we, we did a little bit of prep the other day, and we talked quite a bit about this question of yours, and Tom, you said something the other day, was really great about relationships, and organizing.
6: Well, organizing is relationships. It's relationship building. Um... We've had pamphlets, um, we have a new organizer, and they say, well, how do you organize? And we made a pamphlet like here, are the, the seven ways to organize. And I think that that's useful only in, in giving a kind of a comfort level to the new guy, but really organizing is relationship building and that's an organic process. It's building trust. It's the, the really understanding what they're supposed to do and what you're doing. And it's a subtle ongoing process that's my view of organizing in any, in any case. Um, yeah.
5: yeah. And I, and I think that one of the reasons why that understanding is so important, at least it guides us anyway, is that we are often having to navigate that that straddling between meeting people's immediate needs um, and then thinking about the, the system change that we're trying to always stay focused on um, and asking like it's like a it's a constant sort of like self check-in like how is this you know the the most strategic and best use of our energy whatever that the various projects might be at the time Um, and is it going to get us to that bigger goal um, that we have in the long view Um, and some of the times that means doing food programming in the buildings a lot of that is happening right now um, there is an incredible push in the last year and beyond um, by Indigenous staff within the collaborative um, at cultural programming and building relationships with elders um, outside of the community and Indigenous tenants in the community um, who, who really need those, those connections as, a, as an important kind of part of their pathway toward however we might define, you know, um, stability or liberation in terms of housing and the overdose crisis and all of it. Um, And, and all of those things are really, really key relationship building pieces that, that really allow you to do the deeper organizing work. Um, And so you kind of have to do both. Wow, it's a huge pigeon just lighted on the ledge right in front of me sort <laughs> of distracting I don't, wendy i don't know how you work in this office um yeah, yeah. so what was i trying to say oh um the, the the straddling between service and organizing um i i don't think it, it's an either or it's 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 usually an and mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you're you're in the buildings and just last week i i door knocked a whole sro to try and get people vaccinated and i was not doing deep organizing the structural change in those two hours. I was just trying to make sure people have this immediate thing that they need. Um, later down the road, maybe that's going to lead to the relationships we need to activate people to do um, the deeper the deeper work um, that, that we're interested in. We always talk about like the Trojan horse, um, a really dear friend and organizer within the collaborative um, likes to think about or, or uh, the, the camel, I guess, um, metaphor, getting getting the Trojan horse into the building, which it might be any number of things. And actually, we're there to organize, but it's it looks like something else, you know. Um, yeah, I don't think it's it's a it's stark a separation as we think.
3: Yeah, I just actually just want to add to that because like I completely agree and I think what struck me, Danielle, about what you said. Um, you were trying to do structural change. you're just trying to get this uh, this vaccine something thing that people need to them right away. And I think I think there is something to be said there is a double edged sword a little bit with mutual aid organizing or grassroots organizing in the sense that the very communities that are most harmed by the states are the ones that are stepping up to perform the work uh, the government should be doing. Like, and I think about that in the context of my own work, like I make a TA salary, I am not, I'm by no means someone who is well-privileged and resource. and I'm the one doing this. And there is something exhausting about that. And there is also the potential of burnout, which is very, a big problem I think in grassroots organizing. But I also think there's this tendency to assume that um, like, because we're doing the work that the government does, we're automatically alleviating it and not creating structural change. And I think my first thought to that kind of thing is, yes, yeah, sorry, I just saw the group, uh, I will do that. Um, I think my first thought to that is one, I think there's a lot, especially in my opinion, as like someone who's a grassroots organizer and an academic, there are there is a tendency for academics in particular to criticize this work and be like, well, you're just doing the work of the state without It's like that's true but you know if I don't do this someone's not going to eat and I think there's some there's an important thing to be said about the fact that people need these immediate resources and critique needs to be understood in relation to the fact that like that's important immediate survival is important and valuable and then I would also add to that and say that when you do mutual aid you offer an alternative to what our society says is normal you offer this alternative where people can show up because they want to and because they care for people that they don't know and you believe in like a radical type of love and I think that is anti-systemic it may be reinforcing on a material level a system but on a cultural ideological level it's saying there's an alternative there's another way that we can show up for each other and I think that that's actually very powerful and gets understated a lot of the time when we talk about mutual aid projects and so yes well it is exhausting to be a part of a disenfranchised group and then lead the initiatives or be a part of initiatives that um, the government should be doing, it's also true that there's something really empowering and transformative and <clears> then <throat> doing away with those structures and saying, you know what, we're actually going to show up for each other because that's what we want to do.
4: Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I I, thanks for that, everyone. It's like, definitely um not a case of either or I think that like you need to like meet people's immediate needs like if someone's really hungry they can't talk to you like you're never gonna get there um so I think that that's really important and I yeah and I think that like um being prefigurative in the way that like our group relates to each other and and hoping that that will kind of reach out into how um the networks that we're building kind of function as well like um has been a a big part of of what we're doing like um yeah I think that you can you can like explain till you're blue in the face about like why capitalism is bad or whatever but it's a lot easier to like explain mutual aid and like how people already take care of each other through example Um, like people know that how to like bring food to a sick neighbor, they know how to do these things. And so like reminding people that that's like not a foreign concept and then like um, building people's capacity to do that, I think is really important. And like, I think that we're not necessarily like doing things that the state should be, or we are doing things that the state should be doing for sure. But I think that like, we're also building an alternative structure, right? Like we're not trying to build something that feeds back into the state. Um, and like can be taken by them because the like the consensus organizing and the roots of our decision making and the like way that we relate to each other is like functionally not um, useful for the state as well so I think that like yeah being
0: um,
4: yeah (laughs) there's just like a long way to go and it's hard to just like change people's minds about how they should relate to each other and and sometimes it's like like really small steps need to be made first like when we were doing the veggie markets this year people were just like shocked that we were giving away things for free they were like what the hell is this and like that hurdle is like huge right so getting people to like think about the way that they relate to each other is like a really big and important first step in building those relationships with an eye towards like long-term um, and like long changes, like generational changes, to be honest, I think is like really important.
1: Thank you, I'll just read Kate Johnson's um, comment because it relates directly to what you said. She says, while we all need to guard against burnout, there is also more dignity and meaning in mutual aid. The fuller empowerment of people could and should lead to burden sharing and that means less burnout so- Actually, I think well, I mean we're still looking for I know, a, I know. the audience as well. So please again you can use yeah, the right I, hand if you want to ask a question or put it into the chat and we're we're following closely. Yeah.
2: I want to, you know, take like one second if our you know participants wanna say a couple of words about the comment or
4: you good. I, I also think like burnout's super real, but, um, but building networks that have enough people that they can pick up the slack is also something that's been really powerful about like this group. Um, and something that I'm not super familiar with. So it's been like a nice surprise and definitely like our group capacity goes up and down, but usually personal capacity is like, not the biggest issue because people can take care of themselves and other people will be able to like, in the spot so I think I think your comment's right about like sharing sharing that like power and work is really important
3: yeah and I actually thinking it it's a very astute comment and like just thinking about my experiences the people's pantry when we started there was like five of us and now there's a lot of us and like those shifts and the rise in volunteers happened because it became more normal and acceptable for people to show up for each other and do mutual aid. And with that, we saw a huge um, movement away from burnout and collective responsibility, which made the organizing a lot easier. And similarly, um, like, even if, so if I, for instance, if I think about it, like at the very beginning when COVID hit, I was like doing all the cooking, shopping and delivering for like 15 or 20 families every week now I have like four different five different drivers uh three different chefs like I only do like cooking once in a while and grocery once in a while and that's like and that makes a huge difference right but it also speaks to like this increase of people showing up for other people and then similarly I'm doing a lot of the frontline communication with um requesters. And what I've noticed is at the beginning people would apologize quite a bit. Um, they would say, sorry. And it, it was interesting because that was actually the more difficult work. You would do a lot of emotional labor to explain that it was okay. Um, and so there's like this kind of double thing happening where when people don't want to request for mutual aid or support, they feel like a burden. Um, it's sti- highly stigmatized and not seen as an appropriate way to be a social citizen. Um, And then that also puts more burden on organizers because we have to support people through that. We kind of border on social work at that point. Um, But as um, the pandemic has progressed and we've seen more um, public recognition and endorsement of mutual aid, I've seen that apologizing lessen quite a bit. And this increased recognition that um, it's not like a hierarchical thing where people who are less fortunate or getting supported it's people that are disproportionately privileged and benefit from violence systems are intentionally giving their resources back because that's the ethical responsible thing to do um and so i've seen both that shift in people showing up but also in community members that get food requests to actually going from being ashamed from actually embracing and actively being a part of that community and naming care as like not an outlier, like as a thing that actually should be central to how we connect to other people. And so I think what you said was very, very true. And that care is a very central and important thing to protecting against burnout and the recognition of care. Tom or Danny, are we
2: good? Awesome. I mean, our next question um, is again, you know, I mean, you somehow touched upon it, but you know, maybe we can expand on this discussion as well about, you know, how in general settler colonialism, you know, in Turtle Island, but also, you know, racial capitalism uh, shape this crisis and the response uh, in your work. Uh, And we are asking this question, you know, Uh, basically, specifically, uh, based on your experiences, you know, on the ground.
5: Um, Yeah, I appreciate this question. Um, One thing I I was hoping to do, though, um, at least in my experience, the term racial capitalism, while it's becoming pretty, like, popularized, maybe, um, among not just academics, but also people who like to think critically about these things. Uh, it's also not something that everybody um, has a definition, a working definition for um, or, or that everybody's heard about. And Tom and I tried to talk about it a little bit this week, but um, I think it'd be worth trying to parse that term out a little bit, like what do we really mean by racial capitalism uh, and where does that come from? And how does that as a framework help us to understand um, all of the uh, inequalities uh, and, you know, inhumane um, things that we witness in in our everyday lives, in our society, in our work. Um, So I can maybe go just by sharing how I I think about it and how I define it. Um, And that's based on um, not my own uh, work, of course, but the work of many other incredible uh, scholars of color Um, and I rely on um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, uh, Laura Polito, and um, uh, Clyde Woods and a number of others uh, who provided these definitions. Um, But it's kind of like a phrase that's trying to get at, all all of these inequalities that are produced by capitalism, um, it's trying to get an understanding that those inequalities are not just economic in nature, that they're not just about class difference, um, but that they're actually uh, rely on uh, racial difference. um, And also they're explicitly racial. And I would also add colonial in nature. So it's kind of trying to get an understanding of of that inequality as as not just being an economic uh, problem. Um, So, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm fully prepared to answer how racial capitalism shapes the terrain <laughs> around um, the mutual aid work that we do, but I, I do think a lot about, um, I mean, the reality in the downtown east side is that it, it is a, a, has been a social and, and racial ghetto, um, ghettoized uh, explicitly through, through state and market practices for a long time. Um, indigenous people are really highly overrepresented in in the tenant groups that, that we work with and, and, and in the homeless population as well. And the long histories of, of land um, relations and um, dispossession and displacement are all predicated on these like these organizing kind of logics of, of racism um, and capitalism and, and colonial power relations. Um, just the fact that we have landlords and tenants and that power inequality uh, is based on that. And, we, and that shapes s- so much of what we do in the our everyday when we're dealing, trying to support people um, who live in these buildings and are having to, to navigate the really profound power inequalities that they face um, with people who have power over them um, and get to decide how much their rent is or whether they're going to have a door on their room that day um, et cetera. So these things might seem really abstract and kind of out there, but they're really just super enmeshed in, in, in the deep kind of DNA of, of, of the, the different power relations that we have to, to negotiate to do this work. Um, and something like COVID just makes, makes it so, so exacerbated. Um, yeah, that became really apparent to me, particularly the, like, even just the global, um, Extent of like lockdown measures, uh, the effect that it had on the drug supply, the effect that that has on, on people who, uh, who live in this community, um, ha- who have been facing so many, a series of crises that are now really interlocking and affect each other. Um, yeah, I'll I'll stop there. Um,
3: yeah, just to kind of add to that, I think racial capitalism is actually very. Um, is an important concept to me because i think that in many academic and activist spaces predominantly those that are occupied by mostly white scholars and organizers is there is a tendency to reduce the inequities and injustices that make something like mutual aid a necessity that make community organizing a necessity to class when in reality in um, modern western societies w- these societies have been conditioned and designed by white supremacy and especially settler colonialism and anti-Black racism. Um, Those are the things that are the most central and in my mind and view, capitalism is a function of of white supremacy and not the other way around. And that is a very important thing to recognize um, because the lives that are disposable in something like COVID-19, the people that are more likely to experience poverty and violence are predominantly Black Indigenous people and people of color in general. Um, and I think for both that reason, it is a lot of BIPOC people are leading mutual aid responses and community responses because we didn't need COVID-19 to happen to know that our lives could be lost, that our lives were as valued as much, where I think a lot of white folks did need that and have that experience regardless of class um, sexuality and to a lesser extent, ability. Um, and so I think settler colonialism and racial capitalism settle, I kind of set the platform where um, the atrocities of COVID-19 could be exaggerated and augmented, And um, like these things pre-existed the pandemic, of course, but just became much worse. And because, but because they pre existed the pandemic, I think a lot of BIPOC folks are the ones that responded and led and I think that's very much highlighted in the second wave of the Black Lives Matter movement because it was predominantly Black communities that were suffering both the physical as well as economic and social harms of COVID. And that, that wasn't new, like anti-Black violence is also a pandemic, is also a global pandemic that we existed and have existed in for a long time. And so I think those two things center or, I mean, shape the organizing work we do, because they are the pillars that shape our society, that like this, this Canadian society is a very violent state that allows certain people to die or to live, to barely live. And that COVID really exaggerated that. And that as a result, it was those communities that showed up a lot. And it was those communities that needed the support.
4: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree with a lot of what's been said. And I'll maybe just add that like, like settler colonialism and racial capitalism happen not just by like taking like physical resources and money, but through like destroying social networks, right. And so it's, it's really clear in doing um, some of the outreach stuff that like people just don't have people, they don't have networks, they don't like, in a lot of the like work that we did in the beginning with food delivery stuff, like, people who called didn't have anyone else to call Um, and I think that like it's really highlighted for me at least the like the lack of of uh, like networks and organizing and then also just in a different vein like the history of like um indigenous and like racialized groups organizing mutual aid things in the past has also greatly influenced like how we conceptualized this group um, and like has been a big part of, of how like I personally understand mutual aid and I think like how we want to model that. So it's like, yeah, there's a huge history of, of um, like indigenous people and people of color and black people like organizing, um, not just against the state, but to survive the state. And like this group is definitely informed by that history.
1: Thank you, I'll just point out um, to the chat, Danny is, is also mentioning Cedric Robinson as being crucial to, to theorizing racial capitalism and how capitalism relies on racial difference in order for it to work and to accumulate.
5: Yeah, he um, literally coined the term and I forgot to say his name, sorry. <laughs>
1: And it also made me think a lot about Laura Polito's work who also talks about how abandonment of communities is also central to racial capitalism, right? So it's not just relying on, on particular labor but also when it's no longer lucrative to, to invest in a community, then, then you abandon it. Which I think a lot of the people you work with are, are, are and are part of, are experiencing that. Some state, a lot of state abandonment. Um, okay. So, so one of the, I think our, our next question is about just one, one of our um, excitements about hosting this panel was that we had people from all across Turtle Island or from three, at least three different locations. Um, and so we're interested in how much your organizing links up with other places. Like, is that something that's important to the work that you do? Um, and what are the challenges of doing that? If maybe you don't do that as much and, and what are the potential futures of, of working with across different geographical locations.
6: I could speak to that very briefly. Um, the SROC was actually modeled after uh, groups in San Francisco. Uh, Wendy Peterson, who's really the, the spearhead of, of the SROC, went down to San Francisco, met these people, saw that it was working. And so we sort of took that model, and I think we modified it into away and there's a there's a real geographical thing they've come up and visited us they've been to conferences and so on i personally haven't gone down there but some of us have um of of course uh, Daniela works out of georgia so there's kind of a geographical link as well so yeah toronto we've had some contact with acorn and people like that um yeah so it is a a, uh, especially very easy with email and so on. Yeah, it is a, a North America kind of thing, yeah.
5: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be gained um, from learning from other, other places and definitely the Astro Collaborative got its inspiration from, from organizing um, and nonprofit work in San Francisco. I remember that, that trip, it was really formative for sure. Us, uh, myself and for sure for Wendy too and others, um, uh, we are like intricately linked with with Queens because uh, Jeff Masuda and Audrey Kobayashi are two co-PIs on the Right to Remain project, and so that's actually why we're even here on this panel. <laughs> um, it's because of that 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 important connection. Um, and more recently, I think uh, Wendy and Sammy and Jeff and Nick Blomley as well um went down to Los Angeles last year um for for a trip and connected with community organizers there and folks that are doing work in the SROs um and and with street homelessness um and a number of other organizations there um and I remember that I I didn't go on that trip but I do remember it being um those kinds of like cross learning experiences I think can be really eye opening and allow you to come back to your own work with a new lens or a new understanding of or renewed focus. Um, And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty important.
3: Yeah, so I I agree very much that it's very important. And I, I think that's something that's actually quite important to me in my work, um, in particular. So, I'm actually in this interesting position where um, I'm an organizer and like a lead organizer in a Toronto-based group. The People's Pantry is Toronto-based and the other co-founders are from Toronto. And my connections to them come from the fact that I am a York University student. So a lot of the people I organize with and know are in Toronto but I myself live in Burlington, Ontario, a neighboring city. And I'm from London, Ontario. And I have a lot of connections to the Southwest border of the GTA. And something I've noticed is there is a tendency um, in Southern Ontario, I mean, actually in in Canada writ large to like reduce activist work, community work to certain cities and Toronto is most definitely one of those places. And to not look at the other work that exists and the other organizing uh, that exists and the other struggles that exist beyond that space. Um, And so being located outside of one of the central cities, um, I was able to connect with a lot of different cities. So like the cities we cover are Toronto, Mississauga, Burlington, Milton, Haleton, Kitchener, Guelph, and Waterloo and like that kind of region. And I think in doing that work, we've sh- like drawn attention to um, not the fact, not just that organizing exists beyond like places like Toronto or Vancouver that it gets reduced to, but also that like people exist in those spaces, struggle exists in those places. And there's actually a lot of importance in trying to have a wide reach. Um, and to not center it on one location. And I think it's one of the things some people like people will say to me is like, oh, it's so cool that you live in Burlington but you're helping people in Toronto. And it's like, well, like why? Why should it be located to a specific region or city? Um, And I think in trying to create these connections that are across city um, and even internationally, it um, wards against the same kind of thing that we associate with nationalism, that you only help people in your immediate space. Um, And as someone who lives in Burlington, but then leads something for Toronto and then cooks meals for people in Hamilton, it's like you realize very quickly how um, meaningless these kind of divisions can be in not completely, obviously, in like policy and provincial spaces, they matter. But like when it comes to showing up and doing community organizing, um, those things just create divisions that we don't need and that you should show up for anyone, regardless of the space that you occupy.
4: um yeah Mutual Aid by Cataraqui- Kingston has not really made any connections or like joined a network or um really talked about that so I can't super speak to that in terms of that group um I think that like the formation of it in aka has definitely like been to anarchist book fairs and like made lots of connections and we used to host a lot of events um I will say we did like Mutual Aid Cataracta Kingston did host a like online reading group a couple weeks ago that was attended by some other people which was really cool (laughs) I actually wasn't expecting that but um it was really nice to talk to people from other cities so I'm hoping that we can do that more um yeah but yeah it would be great to connect with other people in like a more meaningful way or share ideas and resources I think that that's um that's powerful and like speaks to building structures that like um are outside of the state which
2: exciting. Awesome. Uh, thank you. I'm checking the chat again. Um, uh, well, we have another question that is kind of related to, I mean, made me think Tom and Jade, you know, you all said that, you know, COVID somehow unexpectedly, surprisingly, uh, you know, had a positive outcome in terms of the kind of the public support, if you will, quote and public support, or, you know, how people re- retaught their positionality in life, you know, their resources and uh, redistribution, basically. Um, but I was wondering, you know, if you, you know, talked about this in your networks, or if you thought about this, how about, you know, after COVID, if that will ever happen, or after you know what some folks like to call normalcy, you know, after we are back to so-called normalcy, or like do you know does you know do your organizations basically have a you know a total strategy about sustaining these relationships with the folks that you built?
6: Um, yeah. Uh... I don't know that we've actually strategized about it, but uh, obviously we're going to try to uh, maintain the benefits that we've gained, the relationships that we've built. Um, as far as normals concerned, I don't know whether normal is ever going to be quite the same way. I think it's, it's had quite an impact on our, our society. It's a, um, a psychological impact, let's put it that way. And... Uh, so no, I don't think we're ever gonna go back to normal. And of course, there could be some other pandemic uh, besides COVID coming down the road. I mean, the conditions are, are globally um, encourage these kinds of things.
0: So. Um,
5: one thing that I think about in terms of how Things have changed for some SRO tenants. Um, one thing COVID really revealed is kind of like this digital divide, uh, particularly uh, in in really low income communities. Um, people don't have right regular access or ready access to the internet. Particularly now that the libraries had had I don't know if they're open now, but uh, that they were shut. Uh, community centers that all of that stuff just shut down, and people were instantly cut off. Um, and don't have cell phones, uh, uh, many of them don't. And so, you know, we leveraged the relationships and as I said, worked with like these big corporations to get um, in this case, almost upwards of 700 phones. And this is not just the ESSER collaborative but a number of other groups who work together to make that happen um, into the community. and those were just like life-changing devices for many people. It allows them to be able to connect with, with their, with their families and their neighbors and with resources and so on. Uh, we're already seeing the withdrawal of that kind of like initial, like big push that came right away. Like COVID's happening. Everybody helped the tiny side. Um, you know, it tell wanted to like cut off, those phones at the end of December we had to renegotiate and convince them to extend them until June and now we have until June to figure out what to do with those 700 phone lines not all of them are in use still but um, how are we going to make sure that that transition is smooth and how will we support people to get access to these things once um, this sort of like initial I don't know corporate responsibility charity sort of stuff starts to trickle instead of flow. Um, and that's a huge question I have, getting internet into the buildings, all of these things that people needed all along, that suddenly, you know, we, we were just getting like, all of the things that, that, that were needed. Um, and now there's kind of, I'm, I'm recognizing that there is this need to um, deal with the fallout of a withdrawal. Um, and I think that that's actually a pretty common dynamic um, in, in the charity um, model. And so That whole kind of after covid what happens now we're already dealing with with the after of of uh some of those things it's yeah it's hard yeah yeah i think that like
4: our group has talked about it a bit that like most of what we're doing right now is not directly covid related like covid covid impacts a lot of what we're doing and was like the initial start but like um, there's always going to be, like, tenant organizing and stuff to do, and, like, people always need food deliveries if they're sick, like, so those kinds of things, like, yes, they're a crisis response now, but they're also, like, just an ongoing crisis response that, like, it's not going to end, um, when COVID does, and I think that, like, yeah, it's, it's, I definitely think that donations slowed down, like, in the summer when people were feeling, like, like yeah just less impacted by it too so that's definitely something to keep in mind and and like getting people to think about these crises is not COVID specific I think is is challenging but um but like yeah also some people are getting it like like I think it has brought to light at least for some people that we've talked to like um the visibility of like the houseless population in Kingston because people like congregated in one place like that brought a lot of attention um and i think hopefully like we can leverage that a bit like for donations and things post covid still but yeah it's it's hard
3: yeah i i agree like um in my mind um the people's pantry has never been a covid even though we were founded in response to covid i We are not a COVID specific project. We are a people specific project. Um, We were able to mobilize in response to COVID-19, but what made us possible was like the organizing of queer, trans, black, indigenous people of color before us. um, And the fact that these groups as well as other groups have been struggling to get food and resources for centuries. So um, I did, I do think, We are lucky in the sense that because we are operating a region that hasn't established infrastructure of uh, community based organizing specifically queer trans BIPOC led um, that we have some wiggle room um, in being able to extend beyond the pandemic and have that support at the same time, I do find that one of the ways to mitigate that and community support is doing things like media interviews and stuff like that which are very in my experience very unpleasant they're not things that generally I would prefer to do but they're and even like social media we use a lot of Instagram and stuff which is kind of a double-edged sword it does really showcase community work organizing your work but as like the person who leads our social media like it's exhausting and it's difficult and it's the problem is, it's not enough to just do this work. You have to document and share the work that you do also to get support. And that just like, so it's like I'll cook a bunch of food and then I have to take a bunch of nice photos of it and then I have to post it and then I have to write something. It's like, oh, I do not want to do this. <laughs> and so there are ways to mitigate it, but then it adds a lot more labor and stress. And so I think the earlier comment made about, Um, delegating and creating community responsibility to alleviate burnout is one way to address that um, because it does seem like social media and media is a really good strategy to sustain groups after the COVID-19 hub response to community like to support folks um, just to remind people that groups still exist but that then adds additional labor and work and so the fact that having like volunteers continuously come out organizers continuously keep out is like really the most central strategy to sustain groups and I think that's very important because food insecurity and injustice and like as well as like the digital divide and the the huge amount of inequities we faced happened way before COVID-19 and they'll be there after COVID-19 is gone assuming that it can be gone in any real sense so um, those strategies I think are very, very important and are doable, but again, it always comes to a kind of like, um, somewhat of a cost that we have to strategize and navigate.
1: Thank you. So we are getting close to time. I just want to give an opportunity for people in the audience to ask a question if they haven't done so already, or if the panelists want to ask questions of each other can also take this moment to do that.
0: Could, could I ask a question it's Bill Egnatoff um, in I mean I'm involved in, in maybe in one of the organizations that might be a good ally but I've also been made acutely aware especially in recent discussions about the notion of performance allyship where we do like praying on the street corner or whatever like doing things that and I wonder even when I deliver food to people, and I don't have any relationship except to say hi to them or their kids or whatever. But, but, am I just by investing my time in that and not going beyond? Am I just, am I just um, perpetuating the problems that, in in a sense, I'm trying to address? And so, maybe Tom, you talked about about partnering with other organizations, and what what's a good kind of partnering that helps? other organizations that are, are service-oriented be um, better neighbors, I guess? Well, that's a huge
6: question. Um, the SROC is not particularly service-oriented. Uh, we don't really have that capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do the best we can, uh, the Toro Project being an example of that and a very successful one. Uh, we do referral to people we think are 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 good and can help people, uh, if we don't have that capacity, um, and through kinds of partnerships like Right to Remain, and the SROC is a, it's been a very fruitful partnership, um, I think on both sides. Uh, there's no formula for that, and I kind of when I talked about relationship building and organizing, I really don't think there is a formula. You try to make one it can be kind of illustrative uh but these things i always see them as being very organic very people oriented very community oriented and when we talk about you know the sort of mutual aid i think that's embedded in the idea of a community forever as long as human history has been around there's been mutual aid essentially so it's not like it's a new concept um I would just start to meet people. That's what I always do. Uh,
0: Thanks, Jack.
2: Uh, do we have any?
3: Okay. So I was just gonna say, I think an important thing when trying to partner with community groups is to ask them what they need and to do the labor that like, Is named by them. I think a problem is sometimes really well meaning people reach out to organizations and have a lot of ideas, but I think sometimes there's this tendency to use volunteerism and organizing as a way to feel good. And you have to remember that you don't always feel good. Like it doesn't, you don't do it to feel good about yourself or to feel like a sense of purpose. It can have that um but it's it's literally should be motivated by the desire to uplift other people no matter how that shapes your sense of self or what you're doing and so sometimes it can literally just be giving money like giving money should not be over understated like giving direct money to mutual aid is really key it might feel better to cook food for groups or to do more things that feel more involved but it feel maybe feel better to the volunteer or the people that are doing the work but it's about what can, what does the most help, what action does the most help. Um, and if that is something like giving money, for instance, um, then I would, if, and if you can do that, um, or if it's just like those kind of things, like what a community names that like, listen to com- people in the community, listen to those organizers um, and be open to do things and to engage in activities that maybe don't meet your standards of what, you want your organizing to look like, like base that on what the needs are and not what your desires and the work is. Um, and I think a lot of times people don't even know that they're doing that, but it's it's important to remember that this kind of community work, it doesn't always feel nice and it doesn't always make you feel good about yourself. and Cause that's not the point. The, and I think too, especially with things like allyship, which might be the counter to performative activism is sometimes you're giving up parts of yourself because other people aren't given the equitable like ability to exist fully as who they are and that can be painful but just because it's painful it doesn't mean that it's not fruitful and helpful because we live in a society where some people have a lot more than others so sometimes you have to just like give up some of that privilege in order to actually create this equitable reciprocal relationship and organizing can be about that and so I think that's an important thing to remember.
2: Um, let's do, um, are we good? Oh, sorry, Danny.
5: No, it's okay. I was just going to say, um, Bill, thanks for your question. And I would worry maybe less about the performative piece, uh, and just maybe focus on, um, meeting folks where they're at and finding out what labors, uh, are most needed and, um, not asking questions about... <laughs> <laughs> um, the strategy and decisions that that groups make for themselves uh, in that process. Yeah.
0: Thank you. And what you said, I've been hearing too, and so it's good to hear it again. And I am starting to meet people, and and it does seem like the right direction. So thank you.
2: Awesome. Uh. This- do you have anything to add, or no? I don't think that. Okay, <laughs> Awesome. Uh, Tony has another question. I think we can take one more question, right, Carolyn? Um, and I wonder if folks could talk about the concept of reciprocity, which was shared—that uh, mutual aid subsumes. Given that there are some folks who are dealing with crisis trauma and are trying to just survive. They, as has been discussed, sometimes can't engage meaningfully in organizing or give back in any way, but still need support. I'd be interested in hearing about ways that folks conceive of reciprocity in a more complex way.
0: Um,
4: I can start. I think that like reciprocity isn't like a one-to-one thing, and like if someone can't give now. Then maybe like years down the line, they pass it forward. Like, it's not it's not something you can measure either, right? Like, I think that um, yeah, it's great if everyone that we help also wants to like join the group and help someone else, but like that's not gonna be the case. And I think that like building an understanding of reciprocity that's like more about um, helping someone gain the capacity that they can like like help people in the future i think is is important um and that doesn't need to be like always just service work and giving obviously but like that um yeah maybe that person maybe that person never gives back but like their kids do or their neighbor does because they're less like in a bad like not in the worst place you know so um yeah, I just I think that like we have a tendency because we live under capitalism to think super transactionally about like how people interact with each other, and I don't think that that's helpful.
6: At all. Well, I would agree. Uh, I don't ever even consider reciprocity when I and I deal with people. It's just not something I. I'm I'm conscious of or find it's important. I always wish that people would become more engaged. You know, um, I don't tend to exude a lot of enthusiasm in my personality and sometimes wish I did and I could, you know, have that kind of charisma. But um, um, I find that that that's perhaps not realistic, you know, um, to expect reciprocity right across the board. It's just not going to happen. And I, as I said, I just don't pay attention to it. Uh, check.
5: Um, I, I agree with, with Liz, especially that, that point you just made about um, our tendency to think transactionally about these things. Um, it really is about capacity. And if providing you know, a group of tenants in a building with you know, a hot meal through our free program once a week is, is an opportunity for them to come together, uh, build their relationships, diffuse tensions in the building, have a chance to talk about their landlord or the mold problem or whatever, um, that's exactly the kind of, of um, capacity uh, that you want resources to be able to provide. Uh, and that's ultimately what organizing is—is is it's about relationships. And so, um, are is that person going to turn around and start, you know, organizing all your tenant committees and printing flyers? And no, maybe not. Um, but that doesn't mean, like, I think our benchmarks for like what we see as meaningful engagement in organizing—maybe um, we could problematize that a little bit because. Um, folks are always organizing all the time
0: Um,
3: yeah no I I also really like the statement about like how in our society we tend to think about care as transactional and that it's actually far more complex than that and so like I guess to build on the other thing I was saying around the role that sacrifice plays in organizing an allyship if for example, as like a light skinned person of color with intergenerational wealth, I have more access to resources um, and that kind of stuff, as I do in my mind, channeling it back into mutual aid is, I can't say the word reciprocal because I've been like, it's not immediate. Like I'm not getting something back in the transactional sense of it, but I am, it's distributing wealth, right? And so I think recognizing the deep inequity and violence in our society and then making moves and actions to rectify that in your everyday is um, a reciprocal act in my mind. Um, And then whether people, yeah, and I think um, it's important to keep in mind and that it's not transactional um, and that it's coming from, that this redistribution of wealth is coming from oftentimes um, an unearned place of privilege when you remember that it's you kind of do away with the hierarchies that have often damaged charity work in a long time where it's like the people that have get back to the people that don't and that they're good people and it's like you know that they're just unfortunate it's like no people in this violent state have more than others and we have an ethical duty to get back and that is an act of being reciprocal and that when you keep that in mind, you don't adopt that hierarchy in your work that you're doing. And you create more of a community and a network than um, a top-down you know, mindset. And I think that is both important because it's humanizing. You need to recognize that the people you're connecting with are fully human. But also wards against burnout and is a better motivator than just trying to feel good it's it's a motivated by a human condition of like a very radical love that i think is quite important
2: awesome uh i'm not seeing any other questions in the chat um I think I think we are ready to close, and you know I know we said till two thirty, so I don't want to steal more time from our participants as well. So thank you very much, you know, for being here, for taking the time, you know, uh, to be here with us. You know, uh, we really really appreciate all the work you do, and we are really happy that you know we were able to you know have this uh, conversation with you all, uh, and for our audience, and of course you know for our participants as well. Our next net. Uh, session will be on March 4th. Uh, it will be a discussion between uh, Dr. Salas Pedras Pate of Queens University uh, and Brooke Pitawanakwat from York. Uh, and they will be talking about their upcoming work uh, titled, Hey, Indigeneity, We Need to Talk, Indigenous Indigeniz- Indigenization in Universities and its Role in Advancing Settler Colonialism. So we hope to see you there
5: as well uh thank you all
1: thank you everyone
5: thank you so much thank you it was really great to meet everybody
3: yeah thanks everyone.
5: everyone thanks for organizing